Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about one of their heat rocks, something flammable. And today, we're going to be traveling back to 1986 in Big Hair and the soundtrack for John Hughes' classic coming-of-age film, Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink is a story about a group of students deftly navigating classism, race, and relationships in mostly school settings. Just kidding. That's Dear White People. <laughs> the film and its soundtrack released on February 28, 1986 was a slice of the sonic landscape of the 80s. Mm. Guitar riffs, drum machines, synth, and whatever shoulder pads sound like. John Hughes had a musical direction in mind, tapping into the mind of youths coming of age in the Reagan years. And so, with the help of music supervisor David Anderley, he creates a world with a team of it bands, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Smiths, New Order, In Excess, and Suzanne Vega. The soundtrack swings between hype and maudlin, just like high school. Mm. And I was here for it. <laughs> Me and Rolling Stone, who called it one of the 25 greatest soundtracks of all time, our guest is here to tell you why they were right. To talk about the Pretty and Pink soundtrack, we invited Liza Skinner. First and foremost, she is part of Bubble, the new scripted comedy podcast from Max Fun that just launched this past week. She is a prolific stand-up comedian and comedy writer, having worked on or appeared on everything from Adam Ruins Everything to Totally Biased to The Late Late Show and, oh yeah, don't sleep on her off-the-dome rhyme skills. It's harder with a mic, right? It's me. Pickles, pickles, they're in pickle juice. I think I would cut, cut loose if I could get some pickle juice in my hand and then I would go up to maybe a fine man and be like, you think you're salty? You haven't seen me. You would be like, oh shit, she's really saying what I hoped a woman would and I would be like, yeah, and in bed, I'm really good. And he'd be like, Eliza Skinner, welcome to Heat Rocks. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Now, given your penchant for freestyling, we <laughs> thought you would pick a hip-hop album, but here you are with Pretty in Pink, an iconic soundtrack from an iconic film to be sure, but about as far from hip-hop in the 1980s cultural scale as one could imagine. Why do you want to talk about this album? This album was a seminal album for me. This helped create so much of my... Um, interest in music as an adult, mm. as a kid, but kind of breaking away from my parents and what I was hearing on the radio and everything came out of this. I I had a turntable that I got from the thrift store and uh, no money. So I would just buy dollar records from dollar bins and I got this and mm. a dollar record bin. And all of these tracks are just gateways into amazing different bands and genres and like whole sounds that I didn't have any kind of access to otherwise. Plus, as much as I do a lot of rap stuff, I mean, I'm the head writer of a rap TV show, Drop the Mic. I don't consider myself an expert on that. I don't consider myself an expert on this either. But, like, I don't feel like I need to be another white girl giving my opinions about rap. Um, Appreciate that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm glad. Um, there, are, there are enough people doing that. So I'll tell you about New Wave. Okay. <laughs> That's, that I feel like I 
English people, I can get that. We are here for that. Yeah. What came first, the the film or the soundtrack? Which did you discover first? I, I'm sure I must have seen the film first. But the, I kind of have my own relationship with the soundtrack. Like, I couldn't tell you which scene these each of these songs go to. Mm. Um, and, and my memory of the soundtrack is sitting on the floor of my room listening to it over mm. and over again. So, yeah. I don't mean to date you, but... <laughs> Because this film is so much of a signpost for a lot of people's teen years, were you a teenager in the 80s? No, I was not. Okay. Um, For me, this was, as I said, I I got this at like, this was a used record for me. Um, But even still, even in the 90s, these were not songs that that I knew. They, They were not, I mean... The first song on the on the soundtrack, um, "If You Leave" by right. OMD, oh, yeah. Crystal Maneuvers, Maneuvers in, the in the Dark. That was a song that I knew and that I felt like everybody knew. But the rest of it, I was like, "What are these treasures?" <laughs> It brings you into the 80s in a way that I think music supervisors always want to bring you into a feeling, into the vibe. Yeah, into that world. Into that world. And there's no mistake about it that this is an 80s film, Mm. just like The Breakfast Club, and it's the same music supervisor. Mm -hmm. So I think the sensibilities were the same. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the same artists, Some of the same artists. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely uh, post-punk, definitely indie stuff. And that must have been John Hughes' thing around the time. But it was a who's who of of 80s bands. Mm-hmm. Any of these on here your favorite or any of them that you were digging before you found the soundtrack? Before I found the soundtrack, probably just that, that OMD song is probably mm-hmm. all I okay. knew. But I'll say to to date now, um, the Suzanne Vega song with uh, Joe Jackson on keys okay. is something that is in my head constantly. Uh, Pretty in Pink also, the, the, the psychedelic first song, but Left of Center by Suzanne Vega. I have running like on a loop in my head very frequently. Morgan, as someone who was growing up in the 1980s yourself, how did this soundtrack factor into your soundtrack of your life, if it did at all? You know, I, I, I had an experience with the film, um, watching the film in the 80s. Of course, you know, I'm not going to say how old I was then, but I was youthful. And watching the film, I was just drawn into the time. I mean, this was sort of my generation. So it all made sense. Um, Jesse Johnson is on this soundtrack. Yeah, the time. Right. And I was a Jesse Johnson fan. Um, it does sound just a lot like Prince. But otherwise, I liked NXS. I like Suzanne Vega. Um, so it really resonated as true, even though it wasn't really urban. I mean, the, the blackest thing on here is, is uh, Otis Redding, and that's not on the soundtrack. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so I assume they just could not afford that. Yeah, maybe. It also would have stuck out yeah. in this or, or Copacabana, because that's mm-hmm. not on the soundtrack, but that's in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, I mean, I was listening to a lot of New Wave. Yeah. I was listening to, uh, you know, it's like Spandau Ballet, Come on Eileen. So it, it rang true for me. But I'm wondering, stepping away from the soundtrack and turning to the film itself, because, sure. again... One of the things that I think if anyone knows anything about John Hughes is that he, whether as a director or as a writer, and I think on this film he didn't direct it, but he did write it, and so everyone gives him credit for Pretty in Pink, 
is that these were definitive 80s films, at least for a particular generation and a particular community. Yeah. I'm wondering, in watching the film, did you feel like this is something that you identified as being formative in your impressions or your memories of the 80s at all? Absolutely. Um, definitely the look of the film, the dress, how Molly Ringwald dressed, how the other kids dressed. Um, even though I was growing up in South Central mm. and I went to an all-girls school, I think I related to the teen angst. Mm. I related to the pressures. Mm. Um, I was on the popular side uh, of school. But there was still you know, class issues, right. even at my own school, so I related to that. I related to the schism between the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. And uh, you know, there were there were, you know, cliques and sets, the jocks, the preps, um, the vintage kids. Mm. And so I saw a lot of my myself um in the film and in Breakfast Club and in Sixteen Candles. Right. I was just a, a full part of the Brat Pack era. Uh, Eliza, as someone who again, you didn't grow up in the moment the film came out. You sort of mm-hmm. discovered it retroactively. Mm-hmm. Were there parts of it that were you a John Hughes fan in general in terms of the his his vision in that sense? Sure. Yeah, I mean definitely, especially when I was like a little younger than the characters in the movies i think that's always when the, that age is most attractive when it's when you're like three eight three years younger than that and you're like oh teenagers so much glamour yeah um and so yeah i definitely uh related to that or, or kind of glamorized it and looked up to oh, i liked it um it didn't it didn't feel like my experience either not just the time but also um just yeah, the, the very Californianess of it. Even mm. though it was in Chicago, it's supposed like, to be Chicago. Yeah, they're yeah. outside so much of the time. It's what? <laughs> like, what? Who? Do, it, and that oh, that scene where she's on a computer and he starts oh talking God. to her, and she's like, "Who is this?" And then he puts up a photo of her, and it was pure science fiction at the time. I was like, "What? How is that?" And of course, now that's right. would be done so exactly. easily. Right, right. So he was uh, very ahead of his time. It was a small bit of science fiction in the midst Absolutely. of a movie. I was reading a, a column in uh, Stereo Gum written by Ryan Lees, and he suggests that one of the double-edged qualities to both Hughes' films but also his soundtracks is that they can, quote, pull out a falsified nostalgia, um, which is to say that it makes us feel nostalgic for a life that we actually never lived. Hmm. And I think, I mean, that's something about that music in particular has the power to do. And I'm wondering if, if either of you identify with that idea in particular, maybe with this soundtrack or any, or some other set of music that it makes you nostalgic for, for a life that you never actually lived at all. I think one thing about the film that I thought was really cool, um, watching it again, cause I watched it again yesterday. And at the time was, I thought it was so cool to work at a record store. Yeah. Yes. And so the fact yeah. that it was set in a record store called tracks um, I was just like, this is like really dope. And for Molly Ringwald's character and her homegirl that worked in there mm-hmm. to be such Annie outsiders, Potts. yeah, yes. Annie Potts, to me, even then I thought, well, this is the coolest thing possible. In, in a way, it brought me into a world that, that I didn't have access to at the time, but I was already a music fan. Mm-hmm. I thought the soundtrack, I, I couldn't really imagine those kids outside of a film listening to that music. Really? No. Yeah, I could see that. I I really couldn't. The kids specifically, the characters in the film, or just anyone of that age? The characters in the film. Oh, interesting. The only person that I probably would have bought it from was Ducky. Yeah. Because Ducky was such a throwback. It was like Buddy Holly meets the Stray Cats. I feel like I could have bought it from from Annie Potts. From Annie Potts. Right. But but definitely not James Spader. No. And And, I just didn't think that was And not Andrew McCarthy. And not Andrew McCarthy. Right. That said... It did give me a nostalgic feeling. I was like, this is sort of dope. And again, that set against um, them working in a record store. And this was a really, 
musical film. There was so much music in there. And when I was watching it, of course, I was doing all the calculations. I was like, what did they spend on this? What did they spend? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, music supervisor. So you can't help it. I was like, how'd they put Uh that in there? Uh Almost as if the music was a character in the film. It really set the tone. Well, one of the things that you were kind of saying earlier and and kind of touched on here is I, I feel like there there was this this through line of being out an outsider mm-hmm. even when you're in the the in group mm. even when you're the popular kid mm. you can be the outsider popular kid and I think having all of this new wave music again I, so I'm not plugged in I wasn't listening at the time I'm not plugged into in the era but it's all British it all sounds just a it has like a just a slightly different edge to it than the American pop new wave, Mm. which I think mirrors that or supports it in a nice way. Um, It's like, yeah, we believe that this is part of the same world, but it's not quite. There's a a slight twist to it. Exactly. And as far as that making me nostalgic, I mean, it definitely makes me nostalgic for my experience with Mm. it, but it feels like Mm. this soundtrack always felt the same to me as like when I would find a, a great blazer at a, a thrift store mm. that I could, that I was like, oh, this is going to be me now. Um, I wear I wear old person clothes, and I and I bought it myself, and I listened to this album, <laughs> and I'll figure it out. There there are other people out there someplace are doing the same thing. It's just got that feeling. I, th- I think I was somewhere, uh, and this was actually this week, and I might have been in a club or something or a lounge, and don't you forget about me came on. Mm-hmm. And I just looked around at my homies and I was like, nobody remembers this jam. To them, this is a new jam. Mm -hmm. But I was drawn right back to Breakfast Club. And I think that's what John Hughes' films have in common, is you can't separate them from the soundtrack and these moments. He he was able to get these moments. And those are connected to music. So maybe John Hughes should have been a music supervisor. (laughs) So was no one else really actually getting into that song? Nobody felt it but me, Oliver. Interesting. Well, my 13-year-old knows the song because they used it in Pitch Perfect. And they, right. the characters watch uh, the end of, of Breakfast Club in the film. And That's so right. the but nostalgia of today's filmmakers going back 20, 30 years is now resonating, at least for my teenager, which sure. I find is hilarious. But did they, they sang their own version of it? Yes. But they actually, I mean, you actually see part of the, the end of Breakfast Club and the song comes up and then, have you not seen Pitch Perfect? No, I have. I have. I just didn't okay. remember that. Yeah, they I do. just have a, a little conflicted feeling about Pitch Perfect and Glee that I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm glad that it like introduces people to these songs. Yes. And I'm like, but, Let's but, go in, but go. the version that you're, you like is, <laughs> please try, please listen to the other version. Sure. <laughs> please check it that, that sure. out. Also, please don't have Landslide be only defined for you by a cheerleader on Glee. Um, I will say, as far as the movie goes, one of the things that I, like, I, I, I'm not crazy about a lot of the societal things that a lot of, like... Uh, you mean the whole plot? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, all of the John Hughes ones, now we look at them, and I'm like, oh, there's some sexual assault. There's a lot of, like, girl is object. Mm. Um, Racism. And, oh, yeah. Long I mean, duck dung, if, baby. If they're, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, like, though. normally just, as you said earlier, all white. Right. And when there is an opportunity to have someone who's not white, racism. Right. Very clever dinner. Appetizing food fitting neatly into interesting uh, round pie. It's a quiche. Hmm. How do you spell? Well, you don't spell it, son. You eat it. (laughs) Um, But also... One of the fan things that bugs me is all these people being like, she should have ended up with Ducky. 
that's what should have happened. Ducky was so cool. And I did think Ducky was cool. When I was a kid watching it, I was like, oh, I'm so glad to know that there's guys like that out there who like to do their hair and wear snappy <laughs> clothes and dance around. But in the story of this movie, it really bothers me when people say that because she never wanted to fuck Ducky. She didn't. And so that's you should not end up with someone that you never wanted to fuck. Right. Like, can I say that on this podcast? Yes. I seem very classy. Okay. Yes. And let's get into the fact that Ducky was low-key a stalker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ducky blew exactly. her phone. Ducky blew her voicemail up. Remember uh-huh. that? He was like, it's 628. It's Ducky. It's well, 630. And he, de- and he sort of demanded her. He's like, I am owed you. Yeah. I'm I'm good to you. You should be mm. with me. He tripped the alarm at the record store. <sighs> yeah. I know just why she didn't sleep with Ducky. Exactly. Because Ducky was doing too much. Yeah. Ducky was freaking out, and there was no vibe between them. That's there it. No, and it's, which, like, in his in a weird way, may have been why he was into her in some sort of safety way. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know, but yeah, it, it, and I mean, I can't even get into the Sloan Blaine stuff. Get into it. Get well, all the way into it. I mean, the 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 biggest sexual pull I think in that movie was the James Spader character, who was the worst one. Uh, so I, I don't know like what that programmed into teens, teen women at that time. I have to say, Young Spader is a shock to see. And again, remember, I did not watch Pretty in Pink when it came out, so I sure. remembered vaguely that he was in it. But when he first shows up on screen, I'm like, oh my god, was he ever that young? He was. Where's where, Kevin Bacon? Like, if you watch Footloose, Young Bacon and Current Bacon, they don't look the same, but it doesn't. It's not as jarring. There's something about Spader in particular that he aged. In a particular way across like well, those 30 years that he did. I felt like he aged very well to a certain point and then he it it, it shifted into mm-hmm. a the different ruin, The a ruin different face. Of, of James Spader, yeah. as my wife would say. Aww. Well, lest we go down too far of a James Spader hole, which, <laughs> and who really doesn't want to go down a deep James Spader hole, Me. we will be right back with more of our conversation with Eliza Skinner about the Pretty in Pink soundtrack after a brief word from some of her other sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Friendship is tough, especially when you're constantly slaying carnivorous hell beasts bent on your destruction. Hey, make sure to clean the tub. I might actually need to shower today. Oh, don't give me that. You've been wearing the same pair of track pants since Tuesday. I mean, they still have the size sticker on the leg. Yeah, I do. Well, still, I was thinking today might be the day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's still alive! Kill it! I don't have any weapons! Get it with the shower head! Shit. My burrito got some gunk on it. But that's just Fairhaven. We make it work. Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. Hey everybody, Hal Lublin and Mark Gagliardi from We Got This here to talk about our upcoming live shows. Why don't you tell everybody the details about our show in Philadelphia? Sure, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go down to Philadelphia Improv Theater, okay? I'm going to do it on Saturday, June 23rd, okay? There are two shows. One is 5 o'clock show, there's an 8 o'clock show. At 8 o'clock show, you can get a VIP ticket and hang out with us at 7pm for like a whole hour. We'll sign something for you. You can hang out. You can talk to us. And then come see a show. Both shows are going to be completely different now. Both shows? Both shows are going to be different. Here's I sounded the- like a British actor trying to do a Philadelphia accent. Yeah. You, you can look up Philadelphia Podcast Festival. You can look that up and get tickets there. Or you can go to Philadelphia Improv Theater. 
to the Fit Theater, P-H-I-T, uh, and you can get tickets there. Or you can just go direct at bit.ly forward slash we got Philly 2018. That's W-E-G-O-T-P-H-I-L-L-Y 2018. We are back with comedian Eliza Skinner talking about the Pretty in Pink soundtrack from 1986. So, Morgan, you haven't already been discussing this from a music supervisor's point of view, which is only apt. I'm wondering for you, what makes for an iconic soundtrack? That's a good question um, and one of my favorites to answer. One is its ability to carry the narrative Mm. without being intrusive. Mm. And I think the other thing is to um, create a sonic palette for the characters. And I think in this case, we have that. Hmm. I think we have the 80s excess with some of the songs here. I think we have the bleeding heart of Ducky with the Otis Redding thing. I feel like some of his other stuff is leans may more, way more towards that, like, the time funk. Absolutely. And this is almost like stepping into a Prince New Wave sound, It is. Which is really, kind of creates like a cool sound to me. Mm-hmm. But every music supervisor has to have a freebie. You mm-hmm. know you can't afford it. It may not make sense, but you're throwing in because it's a jam. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's Jesse Johnson. Mm. And I think the other thing is to create a moment that you'll never forget. Mm. And there are a lot of these moments. Um, iconic stuff is the scene with Ducky in the record store. You'll never, you'll never forget. There were moments where I, where I got taken out of that moment where I thought of Jay-Z and Kanye mm. and Otis. You know? Right. So there, I, I had that moment. But, but uh, that song will always remind me of Pretty in Pink. And so to that end, I think the music supervisor did what we all want to do. And that's to create a moment that you'll take away. How about for you, Eliza? What makes for an iconic soundtrack? Oh, which what she what she said? Okay. No, <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I would take uh, twice as long and and hope to say a quarter of that. But <laughs> did the album have to have to grow on you, or was it love at first listen? Um, I would say side A was love at first listen. Side B had to grow on me. Okay. See, this is how you know someone experienced it first through either a cassette tape or the vinyl <laughs> sides. because she's talking sides yep. right? yeah exactly all you cd yeah. cats don't know nothing about that's that. right the cd should have been so great to like encourage people to listen all the way through to an album but the technology was a bummer i try you can't walk around with the cd you try no. they they lie to you tell you it's anti-skip <laughs> you got that a turntable in your pocket that's not how that works yeah that was a lie yeah I wanted to put the year 1986 in context in terms of soundtracks. Got some heavy hitters on here. Mm-hmm. I'll say the best for last. Stand By Me mm-hmm. was one of them. A lot of mm-hmm. 60s songs, right? A lot of yeah. 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Their I mean, the... budget had to be. <laughs> See, this is all yeah. post-Big Chill, though, I want to say, right? was. And so I think the, the success of the very, very Motown-heavy Big Chill soundtrack probably encouraged a lot of studios to be like, ah, if we just kind of go back 20 years, cha-ching! This is so, the way. Yeah. This is the way. Stand by me. Um, Top Gun. Wow. Uh huh. And at the top of this list is Princess Parade. <laughs> you don't have to be 
one of my favorite soundtracks. Also, also got it a dollar bin and mm-hmm. listened to it until I had that warped because I would just leave it on the turntable. Um, and I love that he called that album Parade. Didn't call it Soundtrack to the to Under the Cherry Moon. I think that's such a cool move. Absolutely. And not the whole not the whole song, not Christopher Tracy's Parade. Mm-hmm. Just Parade. Mm-hmm. So that's what was going on in 1986. Maybe Prince just wanted to distance himself from that film. <laughs> It Me. is a wild film. Have you seen it? <laughs> I've seen it. It's Recasto. <laughs> what a, That's the takeaway. What an odd exchange in this like so stylized. Oh, we're making a we're making a thirties movie, and then we're gonna have this hilarious weird Recasto exchange. I love it. Now read it aloud so we can all hear how knowledgeable you are. Recasto. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is? You don't, do you? Recosto, Recosto, it's nothing. <laughs> Given that context, where do you see the Pretty in Pink soundtrack fitting in with all of those other styles of music that are being captured on those other albums? The reason why I would put it above just about everything in this list mm. except Prince. Mm. And that's just personal mm. personal bias. It's mm. immature. Mm. <laughs> um, but the reason I would put it above above the rest is because it's of the time. Mm. Because it draws you right into the time, right into the 80s, right into teen angst. I mean, you might as well have called this film 1986. And I think the soundtrack is perfect for what was going on. If you juxtapose that soundtrack which some, with something like 13 Reasons Why. Mm. You understand the difference between teenagers in 19, 1986 and teenagers in 2018. The soundtrack for for, uh, for 13 Reasons Why is very emo. Mm. It's very mumbly. That's teenagers today. They have all the same feelings, but they just don't know how to say whatever it is. <laughs> right? So they just listen to Trap to work it out <laughs> and other stuff. This is, to me, classic new wave. It's what this, It's what you'd hear on the radio um, it just puts you in the time, and that 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 puts it above. N- not taking anything away from the Motown and the '60s stuff, this just is precious because it's it's true. Lukewarm take. I think that if you're talking about the best '80s soundtrack, Pretty in Pink to me probably comes in at number two behind not Parade, but obviously Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. Oh sure. And again, you can go back and forth on that argument. Maybe I think it's it's just hard to deny Prince's singular genius with that soundtrack. But this in terms of when we think back to what the 80s meant, what they represented, what comes to mind, this album captures that in a way that, I mean, you can make an argument to some extent for maybe Top Gun because it had some big hits. Footloose had some big hits on it. There were very 80s hits. But when I think of eight of the 80s, maybe this is just a reflection of the fact that someone who grew up in L.A. listening to K-Rock. So I was a new wave guy before I, listened, before I discovered hip-hop. So a lot of this just takes me back. The Echo and the Bunnymen, the New Order, all of that was stuff that I was growing up listening to in high school. And what other soundtrack in the 80s, again, besides Princess with, with Purple Rain, has such specifically kind of, again, I keep using the word iconic because I don't know what's a better phrase to use here than this album. I would say maybe not as iconic, but to me, Flashdance. Ooh. Because mm. you connect yeah. a lot of the music with the dance scenes. Maniac. Also, maybe Footloose? Footloose. I mean, both of them are, had... I, I, I feel like Footloose is the most overplayed song on the Footloose soundtrack, but you got Dancing in the Sheets. You yep. got um, I'm Free, Heaven Help the Man. 
Um, let's hear it for the boy. Yeah, oh, yeah. let's hear it for the boy. Almost Paradise. Sure. Like, there's some good ones. Flashdance also. Flashdance, the Blues Brothers. Mm hmm. But see, the Blues Brothers was all older stuff. And so I don't, I don't think you can count an album whose primary music came from a generation ago. I mean, it might be a great soundtrack, sure. but you can't define the era because the Absolutely. era was 20 years past. The Sleeper soundtrack, Valley Girl. And, and the, I think one main reason why it didn't rise higher is because it took them 11 years to put it out, which to me says rights clear its problems mm. of the wazoo. <laughs> yeah. But check it out. That's, that album had Men at Works, Who Can It Be Now, mm. right? The Psychedelic Furs, Love My Way, one of their other greatest jams. And to me, the, the real heavy, heavy, heavyweight banger on there, Melt With You by Modern English, yeah. which is just one of the greatest songs they hate. So if they had managed to get their ish together, I think Valley Girl could have challenged the Pretty in Pink Throne for best New Wave 80s soundtrack. Agreed. I, I will say we we're talking here, all of these ones that we're talking about are compilation soundtracks that were assembled. And um, Purple Rain and Parade both are, I mean, they're like a hair away from being musicals. Yep. Mm-hmm. They're so one person's expression. Um, and, and and so is the movie also. So it, it, it they're, uh, they're, they're, I would put them in two different categories, just well, me, just me. But the three biggest songs off of Pretty in Pink, If You Leave by OMD, which we've, been t- we've talked about, right? Mm-hmm. The remade version of Pretty in Pink that the Psychedelic Furs mm-hmm. did. So their original version came out on their second album. So they remade it, added a lot more sax. And normally I'm not that, I'm not fond of heavy sax, but this actually kind of works on, on the soundtrack Ooh, version. 1180 sax. And Bring on the Dancing Horses by Echo and the Bunnymen, which I personally like, even if Morgan didn't. Those three songs were written effectively for the soundtrack. So again, it's not Purple Rain. Nothing is going to touch Purple sure. Rain. But the fact that the three biggest hits off this album were songs that were written for the album, I think, is pretty notable and puts it in, again, a class above what you're describing, Eliza, in terms of as, as a compilation soundtrack, which, again, that's what most soundtracks tend to be. Right. This is sort of half and half in that, in that way. Mm-hmm. Favorite song the mm-hmm. fire track from the soundtrack for you for me well i mean I, I i feel like if you it would be if you leave but you know how you kind of use up a song so it doesn't really spark as much anymore so that doesn't really spark for me that much anymore um and uh pretty in pink those saxophones they still do it for me so can i have two, two choices of course <laughs> listen <laughs> it's your world eliza all right I also want to mention, wouldn't it be good? I think that's a it's a it's a real sweet little uh, love ballad kind of moment in there that gets forgotten about. Wouldn't it be good? You guys know. You listen to it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, Oliver Wang. Well, the question actually I wanted to ask is not so much what is the favorite song off the soundtrack, though. It's a good question. What is the best scene in the movie featuring music? From the soundtrack or in general? Just in general. 
Uh, you know, I'm going to say the Otis Redding. Yeah, that's right. with Ducky. That's with one of Ducky. the best movie scenes of any movie. <laughs> like it's goes I down mean, in the annals of of all time. Yeah. Number one, you don't see it coming. Sometimes when you're when you have films, your music supervisor, and you're in the film or you're in that moment on the show, they're like, you you can just sense you're like, okay, here's the big moment. That one we didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, Ducky slides to the record store, and we're just as surprised as Andy and her homegirl, who mm-hmm. are like, where did he come from? Mm-hmm. And I was surprised of that song. He's got an old soul, mm-hmm. but I, I was surprised by by that. And it's just, uh, it would be one thing if nothing was happening except he was staring at her and the song was playing. Oh, oh, oh. But he did the, <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. right, <laughs> one thing. <laughs> but it was like interpretive dance so much energy to it. He's so committed to it. He's I mean, not he's doing it into halfway. it. He isn't. And I sort of expected him to be on the one and the three. <laughs> um, but he had, <laughs> listen, no shade, but you know, you know your situation. Yeah, but uh, he had rhythm. Um, it's just, it's a perfect, to me, yeah. it's a perfect use. Can I give in the runner-up position? I thought the second, my second favorite use of music in the film. It is hard to deny the importance of if you leave during the prom scene because mm-hmm. they play the whole damn song. It's what closes the film. You know, all the emotional weight is put on it. But I think to your point earlier, Liza, it one in this, you kind of get too much of it at a certain point because mm-hmm. it gets you so much. It is uh, Andy's. Uh, dressmaking, getting ready for prom scene, which uses an instrumental version of New Order's These Like Us, mm. which, again, not on the actual soundtrack, which that was more surprising. The Otis Redding I could understand because it didn't feel like it would fit into the overall vibe of it. But I'm surprised they didn't clear Thieves Like Us for the soundtrack, given that they play a good, I don't know, solid two minutes of it in the film. And it happens during this montage, which is really important to sort of the plot and the character development, all this stuff. So, Morgan, to bring it back to your actual question, though, like the, my fire track off of this soundtrack, and I need you to answer the same question here. Oh, that's kind of a tough one, mostly because, my, like I said, the, the two favorite uses of music in the film, neither of those songs appear on here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I got to go with the title track, which is the really easy choice, I suppose, but... Um, just the way that it comes in, and even though the remade version for the soundtrack with the sax, as we've been talking about, it may not be as gritty as the Furs original version, but it just works to launch you, and this is, I think, the point you were making earlier, Morgan, because it does open the film. It just launches you into this moment, this world, and it just sets the right kind of vibe, um, besides just being a great song in and of itself. Yeah. What's your fire track, Morgan? I'm tempted to say the Jesse Johnson, mm. but I think it's so underused in the film. Mm. You hear it as background music. It's right. like a party scene. Right. Um, and so it, it was hard for me to engage the song in the film. As a standalone track, I love it. Yeah. Uh, my favorite would have to be, though, If You Leave. Mm. Um, the pressure's on you as a music supervisor to open big and close big that perfect song that's it that's where you got to make the statement at the beginning and at the end and that to me uh makes a statement it's it's exhilarating you know it's it's to me classic 80s and now that i know it's the same music supervisor as the breakfast club i'm like oh okay well then this makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. um jesse johnson also had a 
song in the Breakfast Club. Sure did. Mm-hmm. How did Tears for Fears not get placement on <laughs> on this album, though? You know, was there beef between maybe Hughes and or maybe the Music Soup and, and Tears for Fears because they they feel like they should belong in the same kind of retinue here. Depeche Tears, there are a bunch of groups that should have been True. on here. Mm-hmm. Spandau, Erasure, <laughs> Wham. Yeah, when you're talking about that the that prom scene, it's like, well, if they can't get true, then they oh. then they go, <laughs> if you leave. If you leave. So I could, that's the one. You're right. I could totally imagine that scene with true cut in instead. Right. It would work. It would totally work. Yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's a perfect prom song. <laughs> Come on. If I had been doing the film, I would have made other choices. <laughs> sure. But I'm not going to take away from that because it, yeah. Rolling Stone said it was the top 25 soundtracks of all yeah. time. So yeah. I have I have no beef with I kinda that. I kind of like the, the imperfectness of a few of the choices. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, on that note, what is the sleeper cut on here? Oh, I, I would say wouldn't it be good? It's not a, a thrilling song, but it's um, It opens it's well. Warm. It, it opens great. And yeah. then the vocals come in. And for me, just speaking for uh. me, it's like, meow. Uh, shout out to <laughs> to Danny Hutton Hitters, which yeah. sounds like a fake name. Like, yeah. it's, were they like a, a cover band that, that they're trying to hide or something? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, and there, there's a couple songs that I'm like, Bleh. Ew, we could have we could have traded this out for something else altogether, but that one I do like, but think it's a little bit of a sleeper. I say the Smiths, please, mm-hmm. please, please, let mm-hmm. me get what I want, mm-hmm. which is a scene that plays when Ducky's feeling down. That's how you know he's a stalker. <laughs> please, 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 let me because get what I want. The Smiths, look at the title of the song. Yeah, oh yeah. Like half of yeah. East LA are stalkers then, because yeah, but it's like please, baby, please, baby, please. It's like Mars <sighs> Blackman out there. Not, not like let's make a connection. It's get me what I want. Please, 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 please. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And no one does a melancholy like Morrissey, so mm, that's true. You know, so can make a good man turn bad. So please, 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 let me, let me, let me, let me get what I want this time. Haven't had a dream in a long time. Is there a song on here that you would like to see a contemporary artist take on? Um, I, maybe, maybe wouldn't it be good? Maybe uh, fix fix it up a little bit. Yeah. Who would you want doing it though? This is the question. See now, now you're asking me to know contemporary artists. That's true. Which that'd be tough. I'm a little... Just say Kendrick Lamar, because yeah, that, it Kendrick, always works. Kendrick, Kendrick. Yes. Childish Gambino? Can we, can we say that? Uh, actually, could you not imagine Childish Gambino doing any of the songs on here? Because why not? I actually could. Yeah. Yeah. Donald could handle that. <laughs> I actually could. If you had to describe the Pretty in Pink soundtrack in three words, and you can't use Pretty in Pink because that'd be cheating. Oh, dang it. What three <laughs> words would you choose? This might, I feel like this is too obvious, but New Wave Angst. Hmm. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Super on point. That's just what it is. That will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Eliza Skinner. Make sure to check out her new podcast, Bubble, here on the Max Fun Network, which just started airing. What else are you working on right now? 
Well, I also have my own music podcast. It's called Cool Playlist. No one told us this. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's called Cool Playlist. And me and a guest make a podcast, make a playlist for a specific life event, moment, or occasion. Um, and yeah, we've done like a playlist for a goth wedding, playlist for you just got superpowers and now you got to figure out what to do with them. That's awesome. Playlist for walking around after a breakup, mm. first day in a cool new outfit. Yeah. They're all fun. Yeah. So when are you going to have us on? I would love That's to have real. you guys on. That's real. I mean, I, that, would, that would be, woof. I don't know if I can hang with no, it. It's the pros in the room, yeah. And where can people find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at Eliza Skinner um, or Instagram at at Skins. That's probably the best way. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan, Shannon Deloria, and Christian Duenas. Today's episode was engineered and edited by Christian. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the always pretty and pink mm. Westlake neighborhood That's of good. Los Angeles. That's good. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every single episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and more goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. We want to thank our most recent five-star iTunes reviewer, Boom Bap Dr. Dante. Shout out to yes. Boom Bap Dr. Dante. If you our listener and you have not had a chance to leave a review for us on iTunes, please consider just taking It'll take 30 seconds, super fast to do it because it is a key way that new listeners can come find us on the interwebs. We also wanted to thank our social media fans out there, including Eden Falano Fessi, mm. at Dan Tress Omi. Okay, shout out to Eden. Also want to thank Linda Holmes. Yes. Linda Holmes for pointing other listeners to the show. Can we get Linda on here? Let's get Linda. Let's get Linda. Linda, if you're listening, you need to come on our show. You're welcome, Linda, to come through. Um, we also want to thank, <laughs> yo, we want to thank Mrs. McCheesenstein. Shout out to Mrs. McCheesenstein at Jana Emter. And finally, we want to thank Crucina uh, for shouting us out for the Martine Perna show. Thank you so much. Mm. We appreciate you tuning in. Nice to see you, Oliver. Nice to see you too, Morgan. And one last thing, here is a teaser for next week's episode, which features musician Benjamin Booker talking about Nigeria's funk pioneer, William Onyabor. And it's not just the music, I mean, but the, the messages from this man. Like, when I think about William Onyabor, I think, because, I mean, we don't know much about him, but I think about him being that kid, that friend that you have or the kid in the back of the class who doesn't say a lot, but, like, when they say something, it's, like, important, you know? Profound. And he was a, a recluse, yes, but, I mean, like, the stuff that he's saying on this record is crazy, you know what I mean? It's really, it's for the people, it's for the world. Like, he's speaking to the world when he's talking. And, in fact, he said in an interview, he had an interview, one of his very rare interviews... He had with a with a reporter named uh, Lauren Laverne. Oh, you know, from Lauren BBC, from BBC, yeah. right? And uh, and she said he said to her, "I want, only wanted to compose music um, for the world." Wow. And so to your point, um, that's what what he wanted to do. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.